you probably are the person who knows your vision the best. If you are not able to convince customers that they should commit to that vision, I think you have a deep issue. And then you should really take the time and be like, why will this person not commit? And what's the reason? And really understand. And then you need to make a choice. The reason you that person has is that something that you should take into account and therefore change your own okay. conviction? Or is this something that you believe is part of the plan or that that person is wrong for you of certain other reasons? Welcome to the podcast B2B SaaS CEOs with me, Joseph Falsen, as your host. I'm the CEO and founder of VAM that helps sales teams close more deals and book more meetings. The idea to this podcast was born because one of my personal goals is to be a world-class B2B SaaS CEO and therefore I need to learn from the best. And I want to take you with me on this journey. Hi, my name is Samir Sabini and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Uni and you're listening to B2B SaaS CEOs. Hi and welcome Samir. Hi, I'm very happy to be here. Great to have you here. And let's dive into it right away. Can you please tell the listeners, what does your company, Uni, do? Do the elevator pitch. Super. Yeah, so I'm the CEO and co-founder of Uni, and we are a vertical banking solution for e-commerce and digital companies. And essentially what we do is very simple. So we have four pillars. We do general banking, which is you know accounts in multiple currencies, it is cards, it is FX, cross-border payments. Then we have capital products. So we do credit cards, we do capital financing for invoices, especially in media buying, Meta, Google. We do inventory financing for our customers' inventory. Then we have financial management. So that is essentially Asana for finance teams. We help our CFOs at the companies that are customers to be more efficient, save time and money in their main processes, accounting, uh, treasury, card control, invoice management. And then lastly, we have what we believe is unparalleled customer support uh, and advisory for e-commerce and digital companies. Uh, So we help them a lot. We are very close to our customers. You have really grown your business. Impressive. Thank you. And if we take it uh, from the very core, then, um, the second question about you. Yes. Who is Samir? Please help me get the context of how you look at yourself. Uh, that's a wonderful question. I think, you know, I see myself as uh, very lucky, uh, first and foremost. You know, I've been since I was, since I was very young. Uh, had different kind of companies and started out, you know, when I was in high school, running actually a breakfast company. I was very engaged in, in a very big NGO in Sweden. And after those first experiences, I became a lawyer, hated 
working with law. You know, I think it was very interesting, but it wasn't my cup of tea. And essentially went into you know e-commerce performance marketing companies. And in those companies, I wasn't the one who drove sales. I wasn't the one who you know had that specialized competence when it came to you know product uh, pick or uh, discovery or for that matter marketing. But essentially, I was the one who did all the boring stuff. So finance, general management, uh, you know, legal, accounting, etc. And I've realized i think over those companies especially three ones how important that support function was maybe it's you know a way of also saying to yourself that you are important but also that a lot of companies fail in those you know foundational matters so that was the starting point i would say for my belief that there was an place for a company like uni that there is a need of a better partner that really focus on one vertical and creates you know specialized functions from the banking to the essential processes in financial management and helps entrepreneurs and finance teams to become better and how i look at myself i think you know I try to see me as you know the support character. I don't know if you play Dota, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I like I play to be, Dota a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I like to be in the back supporting, throwing some spells. And I hope that is also how I work in the company. Obviously, I, you know I'm very passionate, and I am you know a big part of our vision and driving it forward. But when I look around, you know we have exceptional individuals who are great at in the different parts of the business and I try to help them as much as I can to be their best and be drivers in union make sure that we win thank you for sharing and if we then change the spotlights towards who is Sami towards the big why not the big why for, for you as your whole existence but the big why with your company uni why why, why did you start it No, but you know, I was in my last company. I felt very frustrated over a lot of manual processes. I felt frustrated of the lack of understanding from a lot of our financial partners, and I felt that there wasn't any clear, good alternative out there that could really amplify our, you know, time spent. And I think you know, you have this pyramid generally in most businesses where you put. A lot of time on what you can call financial admin in different uh, ways, and in the end, you have a very very small piece in the top where you can actually focus on uh, value adding activities. You know, thinking of okay, what drives this business? How can we improve it? You know, what's the leverage uh, or the levers? And I really believe that it should be the other way around that you can automate the way all these financial admin, all these tedious tasks, and make sure that great people and great minds can focus on driving the business forward, making it better. And what I also saw was that a lot of you know, individuals failed because they couldn't manage to either have the uh, you know, strength or the capital to really build up you know what's needed in order to solve the financial admin and that cost of driving a business is so high and i think it also stops a lot of great people to build businesses and if we can make sure that 
you know, that cost goes down, then more people can build the business they want, more people can succeed. And I think that's better for the world. Wow, throwing in some democratization in in it all also. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, I don't think necessarily it's about like the right for everyone to have a business or something like that. But it's a question of, you know, there is this, you know, power law, which is extremely strong. I believe that, you know, if we can decentralize business as much as possible, you know, that is a positive. And if you, you know, the best way to do that is to decentralize knowledge and make sure that support systems are so strong that you as an individual can do what previously required 100 people to do. And you can see this evolution when it comes to, you know, distribution, like Google Ads, Meta, you know, before, if you start a company, you, you know, you, you could never even, you know, think uh, that you would, you know, distribute to people far, far away or yeah. people you didn't know or, you know, without a lot of money to invest in ads or newspapers or whatever. Yeah. And I think the same revolution we will see in most of these support areas. And what we are trying to do is to really make sure that finance can be something different and where you, you as a entrepreneur and also as a finance team maybe more importantly feel amplified nice okay Sami I have a segment in my podcast called five quick ones yeah and now you need to be quick I, I will throw up a word and you you literally need to say the first word or sentence that pops to your mind yeah. so that's the framework are you ready yeah. yes okay e-commerce uni <laughs> automations Customers. Sales. Can go better. AI. Future. And the last one, the beginning of 2024. New dawn. I I think we're in our heaviest period right now. Oh. (laughs) With Q4. Regarding the comment of AI, the future. So let's talk about a bit uh, regarding AI. Uh, Can you share the top two to three ways you you as a company or you as a leader you choose whatever you want the top two to three ways you work with ai in your business today yeah so generally what we do uh, when it comes to ai is we uh, utilize the technology uh, when it comes to our what we call uh, discovery in different product segments and in our teams Uh, but that's very early uh, and we will apply regardless if you call it applied statistics or AI, uh, for a lot of future features that we're going to launch. In practice today, the main use case for us is when it comes to engineering. So we use Copilot and other AI tools in order to enhance our engineers. And I would say that is you know, the m- main case. We're also looking into certain you know, AI-based tools when it comes to other areas of the business. You, you, know, you know about Sana Labs and others. And I think they provide very interesting solutions based on AI. But what I you know, really are you know, amazed about is how quickly AI has been adopted. We released uh, our spend report today uh, for Q3. And what's interesting is that if you look at the e-commerce companies uh, in Sweden, in Q2, 8% had an uh, AI tool on their subscription list, the SaaS tool. And now in Q3, it's 24%. Uh, 
So there's a huge oh. uptick in e-commerce companies that has now AI subscriptions and they are paying for them actively. And I think, you know, that would be very interesting to follow and both if it actually matters and if they are continue to pay for different AI tools. And secondly, if we can see a difference between those who utilize AI and if they're going to grow faster and become more successful than the ones who doesn't do it. We move on to one of my favorite topics, and this is go to market. And yes. now, now, now I really want to, to collect great data points here, Sami. Can you share some of your key cornerstone around building your go-to-market machine. I heard this, like you're talking about this for one and a half year, one year ago in yeah. Framus Pod. Then, can you can you give the steps regarding building the go-to-market machine from zero to 100k yeah. in ARR, then to the million, and then to yeah? Can you take me through this journey? of yeah. building a successful uh, go-to-market machine. So I think uh, for, if you take it from the start, you know, what we were very successful uh, with was the fact that we went very broad. I think, yeah, you know, Shopify did the same. And it's not necessarily always something that fits your your company, but we chose from day one to say, okay, we don't know enough on about every localized market. And the best way for us to recognize which markets work for us is to go broad, collect insights, and then hone in. So what we did was that we built a prototype. We had a big waiting list campaign. And then in that waiting waiting list campaign, we said, okay, let's not put any stops. Let's try as much as possible. Obviously not, you know, things that took a lot of resources, but from a, like a geography or ICP version with the only essential frame was that it was e-commerce. And then based upon the results and the service and feedback from customers, we decide and understand where we have the biggest market opportunities. And I think that bottom-up approach is very important. I think a lot of a big mistake you can do in the beginning is to look at, you know, top-down TAM and think about, oh, this is a big market or this is, you know, indicators that say that you should go here and there. But in reality, obviously, everything comes down to your individual product and where you start. And we also knew what was the possible starting point. And especially in fintech, where we have regulation, that is very, very important. And we've done that. So, you know, with that being the, the cornerstone, we realized that UK was our main, you know, pre or, or first go-to-market. And what we did was that we've, you know, focused all resources on UK. We made sure that we... First and foremost, built the products to fit the UK market initially. And we got the partners that was best for the UK market. And then we hired uh, both sales in UK and had a big marketing machine centered around the UK. And that was, you know, the beginning and what is special with our... And when you were here in the, in, in, in the past, in the story, how, how big were you now? Had you reached the 1 million in ARR? Where, where, when you had localized UK was the best and you started to build around, where in the journey were you? Yes, we were still very little localized in, in this part and probably around 1 million ARR is probably correct. And what we realized was that, you know, if you have a go-to-market and you have a potential, you may have, you know, the first 
10% of that potential is easily to acquire. Um, and then after that, you need to, you know, either have a better product than you had in the first, you know, portion, or you need to do certain integrations, etc. And in our case, we needed to build out a product. We needed to have our own infrastructure in place, own you know, licenses and so on, and then also do very strong localization. And now, if you, you know, jump to nearly today, uh, our go-to-market is very much centered around, you know, the personas, uh, the CFO, the finance teams. We focus on certain markets because we know that in order to get those 90%, you know, more than the first 10% in, in each market opportunity, you need to fit into their ecosystem. And therefore, we now chose also to adapt to certain ecosystem in the whole journey. Because if you can't, if you jump into a process and say as a, a tool that, oh, we are great at this, but you don't fit into their process, they will not choose you. So you need to really not only recognize the market, you need to recognize the personas, the ICP, and the process you want to take part of. And then you need to fit into that. And obviously that learning should make sure you, or help you to then hone in on that potential. So for example, in our case, if we are deeply integrated with zero accounting, if we know that our value proposition and the buyer committee is the CFO, we need to make sure that we target CFOs that utilize zero in the back end and has, you know, what XYZ as paints. And therefore, we then build up the full machine around that, both when it comes to inbound marketing, content, events, relationships, and more. A lot of what we try to do and what I believe is to build up a certain brand, what we call value in each market that we believe is, is uh, you know, prioritized. And we let that happen over time because in reality, when it comes to financial products, trust is a huge, uh, you know, dependent. Like you would never start working with uni if you don't trust us with your money. So we see that there's a lot of touch points in order to get that inflection point. But that's obviously also, you know, we raised a lot of money and we have been able to you know, come to a certain position and therefore we can do those investments. But you need to be really smart and you need to hustle a lot before then. You know, in the beginning, I think go-to-market is a lot about just as the founder going out and, you know, talk with anyone that you think you can be your customer and convince them that this journey is, you know, right to be on. Like if you look at our 15 biggest customers, one of those was with us from the first month we launched. And you know that they are still they are still here today. They are still number three, and you know that CEO at that company group, you know when they started with us in March 2021, Uni was you know was like the most basic product ever. You could probably call it shit. Like you couldn't see your transactions, you couldn't withdraw money from us. But we had first he signed up on our waiting list. And then I interviewed him and we had calls and he really took, you know, the jump, you know, leap of faith and believed that we were building something that would benefit his companies over the long time. And, you know, if you look at our journey and look back today in hindsight, we would never have come to where we are now if it wasn't for him and his companies, you know, and, and their commitment, their spend, etc. 
So yeah, I think you know you shouldn't overcomplicate it either. Like go to market as a strategy is obviously important as you grow, but in the beginning, it's all about hustle and convincing and creating trust. You know, people to people. Yeah, I heard that from so many successful CEOs now that until the like first million in ARR, like million yeah. euro in ARR, it's all about hustling and talking and just get get the machine going. Yeah, but you know, but it's interesting because you probably are the person who knows your vision the best and you are the one who believes in it the best uh, or the most. And, you know, if you are not able to convince customers that they should commit to that vision, I think you have a deep issue. Uh, And then you should really take the time. And I've done this mistake a lot of times in my life, and I still do it. But, you know, you need to let go of pride and let go of being defensive and be like, why will this person not commit? And what's the reason? And really understand. And then you need to make a choice. The reason you that person has, is that something that you should take into account and therefore change your own you know, conviction? Yeah. You know, or is this something that you believe is part of the plan or that that person is wrong for you for certain other reasons? I think a lot of times people decide that you know, what that person says, they are wrong. And also they think, okay, we will take care of this in you know, time. But the problem with the second alternative that it will come down the road is that if everyone comes down the road, you, know, you never go down the road. You never come there that far. So you need to make sure that you understand, okay, what's the steps? In our case, we had a very firm belief in the beginning. You know, when it comes to go-to-market, we want high spend, low complexity because we knew that no one with high complexity you know, in their business would be satisfied with our solution. So you need a low complexity. On the other hand, in order to move the needle and make sure that we came further, we needed what we call high spend, so high volume customers. And that obviously drastically reduced the number of possible you know, customers That's in nice. this market and also changed ICP a lot and changed the go-to-market a lot. So you need to be really careful, think through, and then you shouldn't be afraid that you know the customers you get today may not be the you know best ICP customers next ten years. You know you change as a company, and you need to be ruthless in your thinking of how you prioritize and how you make sure that you build in the right way. Like for Tesla example, they didn't believe hopefully that the Roadster you know that was uh, their main target. What would main make them you know, the big company they are today, oh, we're selling to some super rich people that love sports cars and want an electric version. Obviously, that wasn't the case, but that made them be able to prove a lot of technologies, gave them time to invest, and therefore they could build products for the second and maybe much bigger ICP they were looking at. And the same way is with entrepreneurs. You need to be smart. Yeah. And you you brought up mistakes, and now I want to... I want to know if you should choose one, the, the biggest go-to-market mistake. What, what do you see you did that you would like to redo if you could? So I think the biggest is probably, you know, the, what, what I'm trying to also give advice about is, you know, not listening enough to your customers. I don't think you can listen enough on your customers. I think you need to have a lot of patience and you need to go into the details. I see 
including myself, I see a lot of entrepreneurs that they think that they listen to customers because they talk with five or ten. You know, it takes much more than anyone can, you know, fathom to really understand another person's day-to-day life and understand their choices and what makes them do certain things in a certain order and what the real pains is about. I really like this Figma. I think it's the Figma story. The founder who went around and like stayed at different potential customers for like three years. They had like zero growth for five years. And then he reached like an infection point with the product, which is when it just took off. And, you know, that commitment obviously is very hard for a lot of people, <laughs> including myself, to stay at uh, customers. But I think it says a lot of, you know, what you need to do. And it's very easy to think about pains and customer, uh, you know, journeys in a too simplistic way and missing a lot of important factors. Uh, so that's the main mistake. I think the second mistake I did or we did was that uh, we underestimated, you know, the, what we call the number of uh, not inter- in- integrations, but tools that customers used in their uh, user journeys. And, and that made it harder for us, I would say, to build features and that fit in their journeys. And I think that is also easy to make because you, you know, especially in a fast moving world and when you have different localized approaches that you miss out on, you know, actual what kind of tools and features they need in order to, to, in order to replace what they have today. Great. Since we're talking to go to market, I need to address uh, outreach basically because yeah. I'm building a sales tools with video and yeah. uh, outreach. So, so I mean, what's your preferred way of being contacted in a modern buyer's journey? Basically, meaning the best way to do outreach to you? Yeah, that's a good question. I get a lot of outreach. Uh, I think not calling me is very good. <laughs> so don't call me. Uh, I don't think people should just send like general emails or on LinkedIn. I think if you want to really, you know, come in contact with us, you need to make sure to do two things to, you know, pin down what you want to happen, the action in the sense of what generally you want me or someone else uh, at the company to do. And secondly, to, because I'm the CEO, you need to tell me who I should interview to. Because it's a no-starter to tell me I want a 15-minute meeting with you. Like, that would never happen. But if you tell me, Samir, we have a compliance tool that will solve XYZ issue that I believe is a pain for you. And could you interview me to Sabina, who is your head of compliance? I think that's the highest chance you'll get. And if I think that that's a pain I've seen in our business... I will, with high probability, actually interview because I will get a little bit more trust because you know who is actually leading that part Yeah. with us. I so, am a little bit skeptical of people who doesn't even have the ability, and I understand why, because they do it in volume. But if you can't even tell me who in our organization you think is the right owner of a question like that, then, then you haven't you know, done the research. Yes, and you know, I think it's then it's very easy for me to just neglected to I'm actually sometimes very uh, amazed by people that try to contact me when I'm like I don't even you know I don't have any clue about this like <laughs> why do you go for me you should go for somewhere maybe they also try that but 
I think people overestimate, at least in a company of our size, how much I would be able to help. Because it's not I'm I'm not a buyer committee. I will never tell any of our uh, leaders who which tool they should use or which provider, etc. Yeah, great input here. Another segment in B2B SaaS that is very appreciated one is external questions. So I actually have one to two people in the episode that will tune in with their voice, of course, pre-recorded, and Uh ask the guest a question. And today's guest appearance here in the podcast is from a person called Theo Setterström. And this is his question. Hi, Samir. Super stoked to get to ask you a question. During the last month, we've seen a massive amount of SaaS companies struggle with their sales. But with your experience and knowledge, what have you observed that the sales organization at the companies that have been able to continue to increase their sales done differently compared to the ones who haven't? Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, Theo, for the question. I think it's a great question. And I think it's important to be very clear-sighted here. My view is that most companies that are able to grow in a hard market environment do so because in a hard market environment, you you know you can't uh, compete as much on price. You can't have deals that are you know negative in profitability or gross margin. And therefore, product market fit becomes more and more important. And I think you know, when I look at uh, great SaaS tools that are still you know, growing, it is because they have a, pro- a product market fit that is you know, extremely strong and that a lot of their, what we call competitive landscape, have changed in for them a very positive direction. I think when it comes to you know, sales and if you want to know specific actions, what I've seen is that those sales teams or what we can call growth levers that work the best is to be brutally honest to yourself. Uh, and I think this is you know, a leadership question in its, in, in its essence, that you need in these kind of market environments to tell yourself, okay, what is working? Where do we see the best deals being done? Where should we put our money? And it sounds pretty easy, but it's extremely hard in reality. And what you need to do in order to really continue to grow with a much worse environment around you is to cut everything else and only focus on those areas or those markets or those ICPs where you see this you know, potential to get this flywheel going strongly. And you should do that as soon as you have information to do it. And, you know, when I look at the landscape, the majority of the ones who maybe had the opportunity to grow but didn't do it is because they waste 50 to 70% of the resources on opportunities that is not as big, but because of legacy, because they've before had a structure or a setup that incentivized them to work and put resources, invest, and it's, you know, if you look at sales efficiency, you know, the reality is that on your salespeople, a small amount usually stands for over a majority of all sales. 
And that should, in a good environment, probably be something you think about a lot, but it's even more important in a hard environment. So you need to be you know, focused on the long term. You need to be very hard on yourself. It's your responsibility as a leader. You need to make sure that if you have the possibility to redirect resources, you should do it as quickly as possible. It's like inventory. It's like a strange thing. When you sell on an e-commerce, there is this e-commerces that instead of you know looking at what sells the most and only focus on marketing that they have these campaigns for unsold inventory why are you putting resources and trying to sell something that people doesn't want but it's just because you have that and instead of seeing it as sunk cost you continue to try to work on it but it directs focus in the wrong way so you need to cut that off and focus just do what you're best at in the markets where you can win the most and then you will see growth. And then you will see that it doesn't need to be you know, some kind of legendary sales team. What you need to do is to be much better than everyone else. And I can promise you that if you do what I say now, you will be one of the best. Because most people, most leaders are not as quick. They are not as hard. They're not as focused. Theo, thank you so much for a great question and Samir for the input here. This segment, I think everybody listening should roll back and listen to twice or three times. And uh, you brought up leadership, Samir. So a uh, leadership question target towards you and superpowers. Yes. What would you say are your superpowers as a leader? I think I am well aware that a lot of people are uh, much better than me uh, when it comes to you know s- um, specialized competence. Uh, and I've in my whole life we've been with people that are smarter than me, you know, uh, quicker than me. Uh, and I think that's made me open to being surrounded by great people and at the same time not afraid of taking decisions. So those two things together I think is very powerful. So I'm very quick on taking decisions. I know that the worst thing an organization can encounter is non-decisions. And I'm not afraid of being surrounded of people that is great because I know that my value doesn't lie in me being able to do everything better than the ones you know that uh, they report to me, but essentially to be better at what's important for the top leader or the CEO or founder, which is taking decisions for the best of the company in a long-term you know outlook. So that's something I think also I'm very passionate I in a good, both good and bad way, but I think it's a superpower in itself. I really care about us winning. I care because I think we can make a huge impact. And I also believe that, you know, if I'm going to be here and if I'm going to add value, then I need to be the one who cares the most. And I think that's the role of a CEO. Very powerful. And we have actually entered the roundup. So we oh. don't have so many questions left, just a few ones. And the first thing here in the roundup is uh, basically you talking to yourself. <laughs> Think the younger, Sami, five, ten years ago, yeah. what top one to three things that you now know that you didn't know would you tell yourself? I think mostly I would tell myself to not take as much risk as I did. I think I had a, was very short-sighted when I was younger. I thought that either I succeed now or are able to 
win in the short term or it's not going to be worth it. And I think now in hindsight, that is not how success is built. You know, success is an accumulation, essentially. And I think, you know, it would have benefited me and my, you know, mental health if I felt in that this is one step of the way instead of feeling that, you know, this year is what it's all about. And then secondly, I think, you know, it's, you know, when, when you have an, I don't, I don't know if it's right to say an entrepreneurial spirit, but if you want to build a lot of things at least, it is, you know, you will encounter a lot of failures and it's extremely hard. And you can become very obsessed about failures in different ways. And I think, you know, you if I could tell myself something about it is that I should have talked with more people about it. I shouldn't have felt ashamed when I fail. I shouldn't have tried to protect, you know, others or myself. And that would have made it much easier. And I think it would have made it much easier to also get to the learnings quicker. It's like everything else, you know, when it comes to emotions, that it's just good to talk about it, like let it out in the air and I think, you know, get out of perspective on it. So that's something I would have said. And lastly, but I don't know if it's, you know, true, but I think I've always, I come from a pretty simple background and I think I wanted a lot, but that's obviously good in the sense that it made me have a high ambition, but I think, you know, in life, you know, it's, you should really try to think about what's, what makes you happy. And that's also very easy to say, but I think that is something our society and too few people today do uh, truly. Uh, there is a lot of opportunities. It's a big world, you know. We are so you know, well, we're probably like seven billion right now, uh, or more. You know, there is so much you can do, and you shouldn't, you know, think that there's only one way. And. Uh... The very last question then for this time at least uh, now and now uh, put on the f- uh, philosophical hat because I want you to share one of your favorite life mottos. Whoa, life mottos. Oh, I you know I usually say that you never wait to celebrate because if something happens worth celebrating, if you don't start celebrating it before, you know you lost out, and if you if it doesn't happen as you want, you also have no time to celebrate. So you should celebrate as soon as you know that it's something that you can celebrate. And this is a great life. <laughs> so we put period with these words. And now I'm quickly shifting the focus to you who's been listening. Two quick ones. Number one, if you got value here from Samir, don't be selfish. Tell a friend or a colleague to listen to Samir in B2B SaaS CEOs. And thing number two, press the subscription button. We have great guests coming here every week. And Samir, a huge thank you for putting aside around 30 minutes together with me to help me and the community to keep on learning. Thank you so much. It's been great.